We come now to uh, our passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. It's 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Please follow as I read this from the English Standard Version translation. Paul addressing, again, young Timothy. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and have a re having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let's pray. Father, help us as we have already prayed during this service for that important, significant, and required measure of your Holy Spirit uh, to guide and to direct and to lead us into truth. Father, uh, even as one of the hymns uh, mentions, may the Holy Spirit be reading this with us guiding us, teaching us, enabling us to understand this passage and the truth that is in it, so that we can be what we would hope and pray for always, that we may be reliable testimonies to the truth of your word, that we may be salt of the earth and light to the world. And this we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message this morning is The Family and the Family of God. So I want to begin, though, with the central teaching, sort of the center point of all of this epistle, of what Paul says to Timothy. Uh, Paul, as an older, experienced uh, apostle and shepherd teacher himself, to his younger protege. Uh, Timothy has the huge task of straightening out a number of things that are broken in the ministry and the life of the church at Ephesus. So the significance of what Paul is saying to Timothy is really linked to the 
very significant, high and holy purpose that Christ has given to the church. So Paul writes to Timothy, and essentially he says in his writing to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 15, that it's the purpose that Timothy would know and that all the church would know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So because the church is what it is, it must behave and conduct its ministry in a particular way. And that conduct also must be so much better than the patterns of the world in order for the church to have an authentic and life-changing and destiny-changing message to the world. So Paul in this section is teaching about the church's conduct as it is supposed to reflect its character as the household of God. Now, in households, there are always responsibilities and relationships. We have duties to those who are dear to us. That's what these 16 verses are about. The church is a family. It is God's family. But we also need to see that Paul is calling the church to its family relationships and responsibilities based on how God first established the family in creation. So with respect to this morning and its message, in light of the calling and purpose that Christ has designed for the church, uh, even because the church is the messenger of the truth, we can't neglect family and church family relationships. Uh, in other words, how we conduct our lives within our families and within the family of the church must reflect the truth of the whole message that God has given to us in the Bible. And that message, the whole message, specifically what we want to look at today, involves the natural family uh, as God originally created it, um, the church as a family, as it's testified to throughout the New Testament, and then specifically the instructions we find here, family care within the church family. So the place I want to begin is with the natural family. Think about this for a moment. Um, what Paul is going to say in terms of family relationships in the church reflect a prior understanding, a kind of common understanding of the nature of the family, really, as God originally designed it. There has to be that common understanding, or the Ephesians aren't going to really understand what Paul is talking about. And it's got to be a common understanding that Christians and non-Christians alike share. A common understanding, really, of the nature and the value and the ideal of the natural family. Otherwise, for Paul to use the natural family as a model wouldn't be helpful, uh, nor would it have any authority. So to understand Paul's instructions right away in these first couple of verses, we must remind ourselves of the biblical teachings on the natural family. First then, what we call the natural family was established at creation. It's in Genesis 1 and 2. It's a creation institution. It's an institution that unites the covenant of marriage with the bearing of children. We see this in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created man. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, fruitful and multiply, this 
has the uh, clear message of the bearing of children. And then in chapter 2, uh, verse 24, uh, we read these words, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So what is said there is that we have a grown man who leaves his family of origin, leaves his parents. He takes unto himself a wife in order to begin the process himself of family making. So families produce the next generation of families, which are to begin within the institution of marriage. The second point in reference to this naturally follows. The natural family has a God-given pattern and design. Genesis shows us that the natural family was designed to be a man and a woman couple, united in the covenant of marriage, along with their children that that marriage would produce. The creation design in an unfallen world, uh, the basic biblical understanding of the family is what we have presented here. But of course, the fallen human condition has brought all sorts of tragic uh, changes, uh, broken changes to the family institution. Not every married couple can have children. Not every married couple remain married. Some women lose their husbands to death and become widows. But in all of these fallen conditions of the human predicament, what lies in the background is the biblical picture of God's normative and authoritative design, that which was ideal. And the composition of the biblical ideal of the family was to be like this, good fathers married to good mothers, producing children who would be good brothers and good sisters to each other. The God-designed pattern made family members deeply committed to one another in the duties of love and care and respect. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense for Paul to uh, call upon the church to live out its life like a family, unless the original design was normative and authoritative and grounded in love and care and respect. Now, the third thing that we should see as we consider the natural family is that it, it's God's model upon which all of society, uh, all of culture has been built. Even the pagan philosophers in the Greco-Roman era of the New Testament, they recognized the family as the most basic unit of society. Uh, they knew that society is built up from the family. Uh, the pattern was considered so significant that philosophers uh, gave themselves over to vigorous discussion and debate of these things. What we should not miss is this. In spite of the fall, the ideal of a family has never been forgotten within paganism or among any of the fallen cultures and nations of the world. And that is why Paul can appeal to the natural family model and apply it to the church. Now, I want you to think about a couple of points of application here. Because God's design for marriage and family is anchored into creation, uh, all of the kinds of things that you and I have seen in, in our day and in our culture that are anti the biblical understanding of marriage and anti the biblical understanding of family, all of these things are truly anti-God. 
from the standpoint of the history of the world, there has never been a culture that has more energized its forces to destroy the natural family than ours. I want you to understand and see that. There has never been an era quite like ours where the cultural forces were more uh, aligned against God's design for family and marriage. But also note this, the greatest victims are children. It's always children who suffer the most when the institutions of marriage and family are attacked, dismantled, and destroyed. And so the culture, the children of our culture, need our prayers. They need the message of God's truth, if ever there's going to be any help. And Christian parents, we, we must do our utmost to give to our children the biblical truth on these matters, because to believe what the culture is teaching through the public school system and through Supreme Court actions and through the entertainment media spells nothing but disaster for our children. It destroys their understanding of what a truly good life is, and it destroys their understanding of why they need Jesus Christ. Now, the second point that I want to go to is the church as a family something that Paul teaches in this passage, again, referencing chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul describes the church in this phrase, the household of God. Now, that phrase means in the Greek, in the original, household of God. It refers to the family household. And all through the New Testament, we have the church pictured as a family. It's God's family. Uh, with God as our father, with Jesus Christ as our elder brother, uh, with all uh, Christians as adopted children into God's family. And that's why the most familiar way that we find in the New Testament for Christians to refer to one another uh, is as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, coming to verses one and two, Paul is telling Timothy as the shepherd teacher how he is to treat others how he is to treat older men and older women, and then his contemporaries in terms of males and females. Now, notice the implication here. How the shepherd teacher is to act, how Timothy is to act, sets the model for all of the church family. It sets the model for how everyone within the church family is to relate to one another. And, and further, since there's so much that has to be corrected in the church at Ephesus, Paul is now teaching Timothy how to do correction. What he must do when he sees someone who's acting contrary to the conduct and behavior that the church must demonstrate in order to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. It's very practical. Paul is telling Timothy what is the proper way to do this? Specifically, then, Paul begins with uh, the example of older men. Here's the approach Timothy is supposed to, to follow. He's supposed to treat older men like fathers, uh, like someone to be looked up to, like someone who deserves to be treated with honor and respect. That is why Timothy isn't to rebuke. Rather, he is to encourage. 
a word that means to call alongside of. That word encourage is the same word that is used to describe the Holy Spirit as the comforter or counselor. It's the same word that's used to describe Jesus as the high priestly advocate and intercessor. So the word encourage then uh, includes the, the range of ideas such as to appeal to or to implore or to plead or to urge or to exhort. The point is, it's not an adversarial kind of word at all. It's not a word ever to de design to be that which foments more conflict. Rather, it fits into the category of persuasion, always persuasion. And then Paul says to Timothy that uh, what Timothy's to do with older men, he's to apply that same kind of approach, the word encourage, the same kind of approach to his relationship to uh, brothers or, or to men in the church, older women in the church, and sisters in the church. So each of these relationships, the word encourage is what is operative. So younger men, he's to treat like their brothers, dearly loved. Older ladies, like mothers, to honor them and to give them full respect. And then younger sister, younger women, he should treat like sisters, uh, always relating to them, always encouraging them. And then as Paul puts wisely with purity, with full purity. So Paul is using the relationships of the ideal family, the creation family, the natural family as the basic guide. When Timothy has to correct someone, he is to emulate the, the kindly, caring, loving and committed relationships that natural families are ideally supposed to possess. Even if a lot of natural families do not have such quality relationships, nevertheless, in the family of God, we should. We should always treat one another with a kind of family honor and love and respect. The family relationship dynamics in the design of the ideal family as God first created it that's to be our rule of responsibility toward one another, to always treat each other with love and care and respect. Now, thinking in terms of application, realistically, this is not always how Christians treat one another in the church family. Well, it's to be expected. There are baby Christians. There are full-grown adults who are still quite immature in their character with respect to Christ. Uh, there's so much of the old life. Uh, there's so much of the old patterns of the world. There's still so much ungodliness within them. And this was clearly true at Ephesus. It, it's possibly true in, in your experiences in church life since all during the time that you've been a Christian. What all this says is that we all need to be moving in the right direction. But there's a more significant application point here. We find it in the fact that it's Paul's directive to Timothy. Timothy, so to speak. Timothy, you are the shepherd teacher. You must be this way. You must emulate these godly family dynamics and how you relate to the church family. You must. Brothers and sisters, 
as we pray for God to call a new shepherd teacher to this congregation, to our church here, we must be praying for God to send a man, whether young or old, who will love and care and respect, respect those who are fathers and mothers and those who are brothers and sisters in the household of God. May God give such a man to our church family. And then finally, we come to verses 3 to 16, the larger portion of this passage that deals with family care within the church family. It's about widows, but if we try to cover every aspect of what is said here about widows to do this in an exhaustive manner, especially if we were going to cover uh, the variations in terms of understanding that we find in, in scholars of the New Testament, uh, we would basically be spending the whole afternoon on this particular topic. It would take us the whole afternoon of instruction to do an adequate job. So I've taken the objective here, my objective in presenting this in a different direction. I want us to think for a moment how when the New Testament was written, and here's the evidence before us. It was written to real situations with real solutions. That's part of the evidence of the truthfulness of these New Testament writings. You know, there's that overworn claim against Scripture, uh, full of myths and legends. I can tell you that only comes from the mind of someone who has been too lazy to read the Bible for himself, especially the New Testament. But further, in giving real solutions to real problems that involve human dynamics, how human beings are to treat one another, the Christian requirement of virtue ranks so much higher than the standard expectations of virtue that were prevailing in the Greco-Roman world of that day. And in that regard, in this matter of a higher standard of virtue, we see that the natural family in all of its creation ideal matters in the highest degree. How we handle our natural family and how we handle those responsibilities of the natural family indicate the quality or the reality of our professed Christianity. So let's look at the real situation and let's look at the problem that Paul was to address at the church at Ephesus. And the, the problem itself is essentially this. How are we to care for the widows within the church life? Now, we know that the subject of widows was very, very important to New Testament Christianity. You know, back in Acts chapter 6, at the very beginning of the New, of the New Testament church, uh, in order to guarantee the proper treatment of widows, uh, the church, led by the Holy Spirit, inaugurated the office of the deacon uh, to govern the daily distribution of bread, which included then the feeding and care of widows. We also can recollect James 1.27. James reminds the church that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So the New Testament places, places a premium of concern upon widows. But then with respect to the care of widows, Paul is going to break down that category 
into four subcategories in order to point out that not all widows are the same and they're not all to be treated in the same manner. So verse three, the first category, true widows. Honor widows who are truly widows. He goes on to define that in verse five. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. So true, a true widow clearly needs the care of the church because she's all alone. Uh, she has no other means of support. In setting her hope, her hope on God, she's setting her hope on God taking care of his family, that is his own household, of which she is a member. The church honors such widows by taking care of them. But then there's a second category. This would be widows who have children or grandchildren or other relatives. We see this in verse four. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. That theme is also picked up in verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So here Paul states the principle of the natural family's duty to the natural family members, to those members of the family who cannot really care for themselves, as in the case of a widow who is part of that family system. It's the family's duty and responsibility to take care of these widows. Then there's a third category. We can call this the enrolled, enrolled widows, verses nine and 10. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Now this category has vexed the best scholars. We honestly don't know exactly what this enrolled widow status was all about in the ancient church. We can see age and exceptional godliness as requirements. Uh, this might point them to a special category of elderly widows uh, who might be set apart to serve the church in certain ways. Uh, perhaps this enrollment then included uh, financial support, there's some evidence for that, but we really don't know uh, enough to say definitive what this category was all about. But in any case, it looks like these widows had proven themselves to be very faithful, godly believers. And it looks like they were definitely receiving some kind of honor and support from the church. And then they're contrasted with the fourth category, the last category, younger widows, verses 11 to 15. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, 
and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. Now, most likely Paul's statements are grounded in what in fact was going on in Ephesus with respect to younger widows who had been enrolled. That is to say, these younger widows who were being helped by the church, who had been on this role, they had sadly shown this pattern of using that support as an opportunity to be idle in order to be busybodies. And too often they broke the pledge they had made to Christ to serve him wholeheartedly uh, by wanting to pull back and not wanting to continue in widowhood, but to marry. So as a matter of practice, Paul is saying, the church should not offer this to these younger widows. In any case, Paul is giving to Timothy, a shepherd teacher, and to the whole church, a way to properly profile the different kinds of widows in the church at Ephesus in order to care for them and to distinguish who has the primary responsibility for their welfare. Is it the natural family or is it the family of God? If it's the natural family, then the care falls to the family household. And if it's the church, then the responsibility falls to the household of God. But in the midst of this, there is a pivotal moral principle that we need to see. And it's stated in verse 8. Paul writes, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is a moral principle of paramount significance, paramount Christian obligation. Paul is saying that we have a duty as Christians, a moral demand, that we take care of our own relatives, and especially those who live within our own immediate family. Notice Paul says, failure to do this would essentially indict us as professing unbelief in Christ. It is that serious. Now, in my own pastoral experience, I've had to invoke this passage twice. Many years ago, uh, I had a situation, really two situations, uh, where I had able-bodied husbands and fathers who were uncommitted to working. Uh, one man was enchanted with schemes to get rich quickly, and he left the burden of bringing home any actual income to his Christian school teacher wife, which was a very meager salary on which she was to support her husband and child. Uh, the other husband and father could not find more than minimum wage work, even though he had a college degree. And in, in great discouragement, he actually quit trying to find any meaningful kind of work. Yet, he had a wife and two kids to support. So in both of these situations, the elders and I had brother-to-brother -brother talks with these men. And in both cases, when these men understood that the neglect of working the neglect of doing their very, very best to take care of their families was to deny the Christian faith. They repented. They both made changes. They both began to take care of their families. And although Paul's specific concern here is with widows, 
the principle overall is much bigger. Christian men must take care of their wives and children, and Christian parents must take care of their children while they were growing up, and grown children as adults must be looking out for and toward the needs of their parents and older relatives. And the church as a whole must be taking care of those who do not really have any family who can take care of them. This is a gospel issue. If, as 1 Timothy 5, 8 says, that neglect of a family makes us deniers of the faith, then our proper care for our families is clearly a gospel imperative. I want to conclude with, with these thoughts. May God give us more grace and wisdom and power from the Holy Spirit. May God give us a deeper dependence upon Christ May God enable us to ever see more clearly how to love him supremely, how to love our neighbors as ourselves, and how to love and care for our families. Because we have a specific purpose. The family of God is the messenger of the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus. And because this is so, we must never neglect our family. We must never neglect our church family responsibilities. But in how we conduct our lives, loving our natural family, loving and commitment to our church family, we would be bearing witness to the truth that we know and have been taught and empowered by the Spirit, how we are to love one another for the sake of Christ. Amen. Our God and Father, give us this deep and practical wisdom to pursue the truth in our relationships within the family that is the church and with the natural family that you've given to each of us. And help us, Almighty God, to understand that you have called us to love and to care and to respect for one another within the body of Christ. Enable us to grow more deeply in love properly for one another, even as you would work in us through the gospel, a deeper love and commitment to you. And may we truly live in such a way that the world would be able to see authenticity in the gospel of truth that we would present to them. We ask this for Jesus' name. Amen.